Hello everyone and welcome back to the Computer Vision in Production podcast show. The podcast show where we talk all about everything computer vision. From the individual components of the technology including vision, cameras and deep learning. Right through to hearing about some of the most interesting applications that companies are using at the moment. Hello everyone and welcome to the Computer Vision in Production podcast. I'm your host Anthony Kelly. Today's guest is Niels Gellert. Niels is the team lead for AI development at Wingcopter. Niels, great to, great to have you on the show. Welcome. Welcome, Anthony. It's nice to meet you and nice to be here today. Yeah, no, really, really excited to have you on this. I've been following Wingcopter for quite some time. Probably one of the standout German companies that I see in, in not in, even just like Vision AI, but AI, AI as a whole. But before we even get in and start talking about Wingcopter, let's let's set the scene a little bit. Let's let's talk about you. What led you to to being a team lead for AI and development at Wingcopter? Where did where did it all start with you? Yeah, well, it's quite an interesting journey from my side. As, as you know, Wingcopter is a company that works in aviation, and you know we're building aircraft. But looking back some years, I never thought that I was in the end working at a company for in aerospace or that built aircraft, basically. Going back some years, I, I was studying physics and I was working a lot in medical image analysis. So working a lot with people that have cancer and stuff like this. And I understood that back in this time that helping people is something which I pretty much like and helping can be quite different. So I was working in medical image analysis, helping people that suffer from cancer. And then I basically said, OK, now if I do medical image analysis, the AI and the CNN stuff in the back is basically the same independently on if I apply to medical image analysis or something completely different. Then I decided to move on to autonomous driving and change to Mercedes-Benz. I worked there for a bit more than four years in autonomous driving, building the AI models. Yeah, then after a bit more than four years, I basically decided to change again and now moved to the aviation and the helicopter, basically. And that is the point in time where People from Wingcopter also reached out to me, asked me, hey, okay, Niels, you have quite some experience in computer vision and that stuff. Um, why don't you want to build up the whole AI team here at Wingcopter? Because Wingcopter, we want to develop more in-house. We want to develop our AI, our autonomous systems in-house, and we need the right people to do this. And yeah, so they reached out to me and um, yeah. That's why I'm now here since a bit more than uh, one and a half years. I'm working now at Wingcopter. I had a chance to set up the whole team. And that's my story on how I got to Wingcopter. Quite, quite an interesting shift from medical imaging to autonomous driving. Um, and, and you can maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but there's obviously a stark difference between the two. Medical imaging, yes, is highly regulated. Maybe a little bit less regulated than autonomous driving because you can... Uh, test autonomous driving a little bit easier, but it's also a lot of image data versus video data. What was it like, I suppose, coming around to to those differences? It's actually different, but also quite similar at the same point in time, point in time right? Because the AI, as I mentioned, that's the same. The backgrounds, the CNNs, they're they're always the same. Um, just the applications different, and everything that comes with those applications. As you mentioned, like for medical image data, we have really, really you data only because you know for every data you need or for every AI model you need to, to get patients that deliver the data or um, agree with getting rec data recorded. In autonomous driving, you said it, it's easier to go out testing. 
And now going back from autonomous driving to the field of aerospace, it's again a bit challenging <laughs> as um, it's quite hard also to get data, right? And if we want to build high quality AI or high quality computer vision models independently on the application, we need to have high quality data. And that was quite easy in autonomous driving, but it's extremely challenging in, in um, getting copter in aviation. Because let me just give you an example. Like, if you want to go out and do some recordings for autonomous driving, you just sit in your car, drive around, and you can record the data as much as you want, basically. Now, in aerospace, it's a bit different because the aerospace is highly regulated. So, for example, there's a rule that you're not allowed to get closer than 2,000 feet, which is approximately 600 meters, uh, to another object. You're not allowed to get closer than this. And this means if we want to do data recording to train our AI models or our computer vision models, we are actually only, from the legal perspective, allowed to record data during flight from objects that are further away than 2,000 feet. And that makes it quite challenging because for sure we <laughs> want to build autonomous systems and they should also be available or able to detect objects that are closer than this distance. And that is the really challenging part. You, you you almost want satellite cameras uh, <laughs> installed in a plane to to take the uh, images around it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's let's go a step back then, and let's talk about Wingcopter as as a whole. Like, I guess, and I imagine a lot of people, your friends, would assume you're in some form of a sci-fi movie. If you're sitting down the pub and you're having a beer, and they say, "Who do you work for?" <laughs> how do you how do you tell them what Wingcopter do or or, or what does I guess what yeah. is the Wingcopter story yeah. the pitch? Actually, you're you're absolutely true. It is kind of a sci-fi. I mean, thinking back ten or twenty years ago, nobody would ever thought that you know there are small aircraft, small unmanned aircraft flying around. And now it's 2022, and we are building those kind of unmanned aircraft that fly around. So it's, it's kind of a sci-fi, actually. Yeah, but. Um, about the story of Wingcopter and, and what we do and what I also tell my friends and what everybody at the company motivates every morning is um, that we want to do something good. So basically two of our founders, our CEO Tom and our CTO Jonathan, they met some years ago. Uh, our CTO Jonathan is really into this aviation stuff and he's genius when it comes to building um, drones and stuff like this. Now CEO Tom uh, worked in Africa for you know, a year or something, uh, some years ago, and then he learned that it's really, really difficult to see that people are actually dying in Africa because they don't, for example, have the right medicine, because the infrastructure is so bad at some places in Africa that it takes hours to get the right medicine to a hospital where people are dying. And like some years ago, the two guys met and said, okay, we want to change the world, we want to do something good for the world. And then we had the technology guy, Jonathan, and the vision guy, Tom, and they met and they said, okay, let's build Wincopter to do something good. And this is also what, what motivates us at Wincopter to work every day a lot to give our best to make sure that we can deliver a product. And actually, it's a really, really nice product, but we want to deliver a product that helps people, that helps um, yeah, humankind to survive to get better to to not suffer or to not die because you're missing or having a lack of medicine and that is what what i tell everyone if i tell them what i'm am i doing at Wincopter. so i having a really really nice and amazing and futuristic product on one side but on the other side it's the spirit of 
every one of us to help people and to do something good. And to be honest, it's a really nice feeling if you go home in the evening and you say, okay, now, again, we could do something amazing that saves people's lives. And that is a truly amazing feeling. I really love that story. And I think we you'd initially told me about that when we were talking about Teles that they were flying, I think it was an organ transplant to like the very northern island of Scotland, which takes like 28 hours to get there. It's a car, a boat, a car. And then they had, it was a manned drone, um, mm. remote controlled, and it, it flew there in, in two and a half hours. But you can see like, you know, adding the computer vision and the AI to that is, it's just making it a lot more feasible. It's making it so much more real. One of the greatest use cases, I mean, there's got to be for uh, for technology, right? Because yeah. as you said, particularly it happens in Africa a lot, but, you know, there's a lot of rural areas in first world countries and yes. Europe that are still facing this problem too. Yes, yes, definitely. And sometimes for us as living in Europe or in the US, it's really hard to actually imagine how the whole you know, the whole setup in, in countries like Africa or in you know, um, countries in Africa can actually be with really, really bad streets or sometimes there aren't actually streets. And it's just, you know, some some mud and, you know, driving there takes hours. And that's really, really, if you've never been there, it's quite hard to understand and, and to to imagine how it looks like there. And uh, in those kinds of areas the ability to fly with drones or to deliver things might be medicine might be organs might be whatever is in, in my opinion and what, what we think definitely a good way and, and supports people there and benefit people there benefit a lot from this yeah it's it's amazing so yeah let's talk about then the product when i say product let's talk about the copter yeah what does it look like what size is it what packages can it take i don't know i've not i've not seen it only only videos and only on your website yeah yeah actually it's it's amazing if you see the first time flying in the real world imagine when i saw it for the first time so um about the product we have our wingcopter 198 uh, which is the current product that, that we develop and we also produce and um, this wingcopter 198 has its name basically from it, its wingspan so the wingspan is exactly 198 centimeters so, um, you know, when, whenever we talk about drones, people know these small DJI drones that you can buy and you can play around that can carry a camera or something as you can take pictures. But the wingcopter is different. And that's why we also don't want to call it a drone, actually, but rather an aircraft, because it's not this toy drone. It's a really serious aircraft. And seeing a two meter wide aircraft in front of you, then taking off and flying around fully electrical is really, really cool. We can basically attach up to yeah, five to six kilograms of payload to the aircraft. And depending for sure on the weather conditions and the route and the payload, we can fly 80 to 100 uh, kilometers far. Wow. Um, <laughs> and that is quite a bit, actually. So, yeah, Con in contrast to the small toy drones, that's a huge distance. And for sure, if we want to fly this large distance, we need the right setup we need the right systems on board to ensure that during our cruise there nothing happens or no crashes can actually happen 
So you, you guys are definitely not going to be using your drones to do like light shows that they do on uh, New Year's Eve. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I'd love to see it, but uh, to be honest, I guess it's a bit overkill with our drones. <laughs> how how loud is a drone? Excuse me? How loud? Oh, um, yeah. So there's, there's two things. So first of all, during takeoff, like we have our fixed wing mode, so our copter takes off vertically. So the Wingcopter 1 and 8 is equipped with eight engines. So all the eight engines are fully switched off when it wants to take off. And then we have a transition such that some of the engines basically tilt and then go to a fixed wing mode, similar like in classical aircraft, right? And um, once the copter is in the fixed wing mode, most of the engines are switched off and then you barely can hear it. But during takeoff and landing, you use hear a yeah. You can hear it, but it's not loud. So no comparison to, you know, big aircraft or also the small personal aircraft. Um, a bit louder than a drone, I would say. But this basically comes to due to the fact that we have eight engines. Um, they help the aircraft taking off vertically and also land vertically when it's landing. And then just before we go into sort of like, you know, the technical parts of, of what makes the drone work or what makes what makes Wingcopter a success what's what's your role so you've been at the business year and a half what was it when you joined what is it now how is it developed kind of give us a little bit of a story around mm. I guess you and your responsibilities when I joined Wingcopter one and a half years ago the company wanted to put more effort into the in-house development that is, the development of the 198 started some time ago, and then you know we had to put on more effort into software development, put in more effort into you know the autonomous systems, and that particularly also means the AI. And um, ever since that, you know, we built up the whole team, we built up the whole infrastructure, we set up all the different expertise in different fields. Because if you want to do computer vision or an AI in general, it's not that you just hire AI experts, and that's it. But you have to need to have people that care about the data, so data engineers. You need to have people that are really, really good in terms of robotics and optimization of AI models to bring it to the edge cutting devices, right? Because that is quite naturally also a big challenge. We are a small aircraft, right? Only two meters uh, wingspan. But we need to, have to run the latest and the best AI models on it, which means we need to optimize it quite a bit because we cannot put simply the big GPUs that we have in our uh, workstations there, put them into the copter uh, and let the AI run on this one. Um, so we have to have lots of different expertise in the different fields. And that is also quite interesting and challenging. And actually it's quite a lot of fun to see all those different people working together and bringing the AI system to life on our copter. Yeah. No, and look, we can really touch into that a little bit more. I'm, I'm excited to hear about all the elements that go into it. I imagine even tech aside, we're talking hardware, we're talking um, batteries. <laughs> yes. You know, there's 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 a lot of things that you have to, I guess you you have to get the most out of to then fit it into something that is smaller than a vehicle. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, so the over um, takeoff weight, the maximum takeoff weight is approximately 25 kilograms that includes uh, the copter that includes the battery but also includes the payload and only the batteries are roughly taking half of the weight of the whole takeoff 
uh, weight, so roughly 10 to 12 kilograms for, just for the batteries, and the rest is the copter and the payload. But yeah, it's 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 very challenging to bring the performance of the A model AI model as best as possible, but at the same time reduce the power consumption as low as possible because the less power we as the AI consume, the further the copter can fly. And for sure, this is something which our customers want, right? They buy and decide for our copter because we have a huge range. And with every kilometer more, our customer has a bigger benefit. So we need to do all we can to reduce the power consumption in the copter such that our customer has the best product on the market. Yeah. So you've already spoke about how difficult it is to yes. acquire data because there's lots of limitations. There's, you know, you said 200 feet, so 600 meters. You can only stay away from certain vehicle or certain other aircrafts. Yeah, talk to us about data acquisition. It sounds sounds tough. So I imagine it is going to be tough. It is. It is definitely. It is definitely tough. Um, I also want to compare once again with autonomous driving because this is what most people are, you know, already know a bit. In in autonomous driving, you know, you can go out, can record data, and things that you most likely care about is other objects that participate or other road users like cars, trucks, buses, bicycles, or bicyclists, pedestrians particularly. And uh, for sure, in addition, also, you know, traffic lights and traffic lanes and um, all that stuff and traffic signs. Now in, in um, aerospace, so for us, it's a bit different. What we particularly are interested in are aircraft, big aircraft, small aircraft, very big aircraft, very small aircraft, helicopters, gliders, parachutes, but also birds, so everything that can, you know, appear during a cruise. And we need to be able to detect those objects and to avoid those objects. This is our system um, is called detect and avoid. So detect other air users, airspace users, and avoid them. And the good thing is, um, compared to autonomous driving, we don't have pedestrians. So pedestrians in autonomous driving are a huge factor of randomness because they're not really cooperative and can basically walk wherever they want to. Uh, we don't have those. Hu human nature also has, yes. like, yeah. we can do anything. Someone can be in a rush and yes. walk in between two parked cars when there's a green light across the road, two cars up, right? And for autonomous driving, yeah, it's easy. You've got lanes, people, traffic light, traffic sign, yeah. motorcycles, cyclists. You can collect it relatively easy, but people are, are I guess, the issue. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in, um, okay, in, like for us at Bincopter, it's a bit easier because we don't have those kind of objects. But um, the challenge that we have, as I mentioned, is the, the distance. Um, so whenever we're going to get closer than 2,000 feet to another object, we are not allowed to do this. And that makes it quite hard for us to record the data. So we need to have multiple ways of recording and, and generating this data as well. Because if we, like in 99% of the time, let's say we, we fly in a safe way and we're not getting closer than 2,000 feet to another aircraft. But although the aerospace is quite regulated and you know, um, aircraft typically they fly on their specific routes and also it's separated between where drones or smaller aircraft or UAVs like 
our wingcopter are allowed to fly and business jets and the commercial jets are flying much higher flight level. Um, there might be some times where there are some, you know, situations that can be dangerous. Just assume there's another aircraft, but the engine fails, so for sure it needs to go down. And then it can happen that we are getting closer than this 2,000 feet to the other object. And now we need to be able to detect the other object as well, which is quite difficult. And this is the 0.001% of the whole time where those situations can happen. Now, we want our system to not only work in the 99.9%, but also in the 0.01% of the time. And that's a challenging thing, right? And this is the point that we need to make sure we are able to deal even with those scenarios, although they're not really part of the training data set. And there are a lot of different examples I can, can tell you about as well. So if we just, for example, take hot air balloons, here in Germany, people love to go on these hot air balloon rides, actually. And there are sometimes really festivals where you see tons of hot air balloons and people really like it to change hot air balloons in terms of how they look like. So the typical hot air balloon is roundish, right? Simply as, as we think about it, but there are lots of different shapes. So people, for example, um, have a hot air balloon that looks like, I don't know, a bottle of Coke or a screwdriver or such things can happen. And we as Vincopter, or particularly we as the AI team, we need to be able to detect those kind of objects as well. Although I'm pretty sure there will never be a screwdriver part of the training data set for our computer vision that is actually a hot air balloon. And this is a really, really challenging thing as well. And that is um, something that we need to cover and, and cope with as well. And but this is in, in terms of AI, this is called out of distribution detection. So we have our set of training data and we have things that are not part of this distribution, this training distribution but it's rather out of distribution. And we need to be able to detect those things as well on a high fidelity to make sure that in, during our actual cruise, we are able to detect those objects and avoid them. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about that before this. And I mean, that's, to me, is probably going to have to be one of the, the hottest topics. Yes. It must be, it has to be on the edge, the bleeding edge of, of research, you know, cutting edge of technology it's it's like taking few shot learning and making yeah. it like a million times better right how do you predict based on what you don't know <laughs> yeah that's 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 a really good question and uh, if there was like a perfect answer to the solution uh, we wouldn't have to do the research on this topic or the whole computer vision community wouldn't have to do the research yeah it's actually quite a challenging thing and as you mentioned it's it's at the edge of the research so uh, we are also actively researching on this. So um, just recently we had a you know, thesis that, that covered this topic and we apply different ideas that are partly new, partly was applied to different use cases before. But yeah, we are, we're still ongoing. But this is also one of the interesting things because now we can really deep dive into the new network that we use and change things in the network and the network architecture and the loss functions and all this stuff to see on how well the adjustments are able to get along with, you know, this out of distribution detection. And um, yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting topic. And there's a lot more to discover in there. 
And that's also some of the fun part of my job, right? To on the one side focus on building a product, but on the other side, really being at the edge of research and think about things and solutions that can do this really, really challenging tasks better and solve them better. Yeah, you're the first person I've heard that from. And I mean, I'm speaking to people in computer vision and deep learning every week. And you're still, I was, I, I hosted an event in Berlin last week and I was, I was telling people about it, you know, even some people who are in very standard, there, there's data sets will be quite standard. You know, they might be detecting football games, right? There's not going to be mm. that much out of distribution detection to be done. But if it does happen, they want to be able to know, is it a player? Is it a ball? And, yes. and basically make a prediction off it. But like, they're they're purely training off what they already know. But uh, I just just a question for you: Do you think that that would take? Is it a massive skill set difference, or is it as much as a mindset difference as well to even attempt something like that? Let's say it's a combination of both, right? So we we need we need to be or people that that develop now our algorithms. We need to be very well trained in the terms of what already exists. And the application is really independently if it's like detecting footballs or balls or players or whatever, or aircraft or cars or whatever. But this out of distribution detection is something which in some applications may appear more often. And I would say, let's say in the dynamic areas or in the, in the scenarios or in the fields where it's quite dynamic, like autonomous driving, autonomous flying, this probably may occur more often than let's say if we do computer vision on football games or something like this yeah but the techniques behind is probably the same right you can have out of distribution detection the same way in, in autonomous driving and autonomous flying as well as if you have in watching football games the need for this out of distribution might be different however right because if you don't do out-of-distribution detection, autonomous driving, autonomous flying. You might end up in a crash that basically costs life. Not sure how this is the same or if this is the same in, in watching football games. If you're True. not able to detect, I don't know, the second <laughs> ball. Um, hopefully people won't die, right, in, in this uh, setting. But yeah, actually, the application doesn't matter. The techniques from the computer vision side are the same actually well i guess maybe a similar domain that you could refer it to might be medical imaging right again it's it's that valuable to to know what it is or yeah. even to make a prediction off it it's it's life or death but then again autonomous driving autonomous flight and medical imaging are highly are way more regulated than computer vision for a football game right for sure for sure and that's also if you now speak about this one of the biggest challenges that we have to face because what we aim with our wingcopter is to get the type certification from the authorities. So in uh, the US, it's the FAA, and in Europe, it's the EASA. But those authorities, for them, AI and, let's say, intelligent systems is also something which is quite new. So there aren't any you know, rules available where you can say, OK, now, if you want to get a drone certified that has an AI system, you need to do these and these and these steps. So this is an ongoing and evolving process because for all of them, as well as for all of us, that's something completely new. It's probably a big reason why you have like medical companies, medical AI companies have stakeholders who are professional practitioners, physicians, 
and you guys also have stakeholders who are pilots. Yes, yes, exactly. Because what we want to do is we want to learn from um, the experience of the pilots and how pilots approach those things and also mitigate the risks in the end. Um, personally, I mean, I love flying, but I, I'm not a pilot. I don't know how those things are treated in, let's say, real world, right? Uh, what will happen if there's a incident or possible crash? I don't know how people are reacting and, and what the rules are, but we need to learn yeah. from them. And there are lots of things that we can learn from the pilots, from the actual people that fly aircraft. And also the authorities take this input as quite valuable input. They, they, they have, I guess you can talk about it. They also have gut feeling that we won't have, but we will also have to try and train our model if it's given an A-B scenario what is the likely better decision, right? And I guess you can only get that feedback from from a pilot. Yes, yes, definitely. We can learn a lot from them. And sometimes it's also, I mean, for pilots, it's quite easy to judge a certain situation, while for human beings or for, for computers, it's, it's not as easy, particularly because people are from the way of how to perceive the environment and how they make their decisions are still a bit different on how the computers make this. Not that we are in a really good way, but the last percentage in making the decision is still a really, really big step that we need to go forward from the AI perspective. And there is, let's say, also, let's say, the, the philosophical way of seeing those things. For us as human beings, it's acceptable to do mistakes. And if there is an air, a pilot that crashes an aircraft, there's always a person that we can basically make responsible for the crash. But what happens if a machine makes a mistake? Like for us as human beings, it's quite hard to accept that machines can do mistakes as well. And yeah. that is really, really challenging. So the, the level of acceptance for machines versus human beings is different. It's higher. Yeah, yeah. For people expect people to make a car crash. Yes. And um, unfortunately, people die in, in, in road accidents every single day, you yes. know. If there was a billion AI vehicles out there and I had one crash a month, people would go crazy. Yes. If it was one 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 road accident per month in billions versus, you know, we, we're probably in the hundreds of thousands a day as humans, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And that we, is, can, we, that we can relate to human error. We can't relate to machine error. <laughs> that is the big problem, yes. And there is also something which I think we need to change in our mindset, that it's okay if machines do mistakes. For sure, we don't want machines to do mistakes, but nobody, neither a person nor a machine, can be perfect in every single way because there's always some kinds of weird setting that may, I don't know, confuse the machine, but also confuse human beings. And it yeah. is uh, a challenging point. Let's talk about, we, we, we've, we've already mentioned about, you know, similarities to autonomous driving. But I want to I wanna talk about, and the reason why we talk about autonomous driving, a lot of people know it, right? People have, have written their masters, their bachelors, yeah. their thesis is on this. A lot of people can relate to it. They know what goes into it. But it's... It's a lot different than this space. And, and you've mentioned, look, number one, the, the distance that everything is to detect objects. First off, tell me how you work with that and, and what's the challenges? 
yeah so the distance is a really really big challenge right so think about autonomous driving the objects that are of interest for an autonomous car are probably in a distance of zero to i don't know 200 meters right everything that is further away than 200 meters probably isn't that much of interest for autonomous driving for us as in copter as we want to fly autonomously it's completely different right we have this rule that you are not allowed to get closer than 600 meters to another object and this in return means if we want to detect objects and make sure to avoid them such that they are not getting closer than 600 meters we need to detect them already at i don't know one kilometer two kilometers depending on their speed for sure because we for sure need to have sufficient time to avoid them and to calculate our actual avoidance maneuver so that means we need to be able to detect objects that are closer than five kilometers if it's a really big aircraft, right? And for the small aircraft like a you know, two-seated Cessna, um, we need to detect it at a bit more than one kilometer. And that is challenging. And now for sure, we as a helicopter need to ask ourselves the question, how can we detect those objects? And which sensors or which modality do are we actually using? So in autonomous driving, Typically, um, companies use a set of cameras, laser scanners, and radars. But th they can only do it because the objects they want, they want to detect are comparably close. If we now want to have a LiDAR system embedded in our wing copter that detects objects at a distance of two kilometers or even further, the LiDAR would be massive. And this is not feasible for us because we don't have sufficient payload and we don't have sufficient power for sure. And the same goes for radars as well. So what we use is specifically camera-based uh, systems. I was, so, I was, you know, it's, it's good that you mentioned that because I was actually going to ask that you mentioned the LiDAR or radar would be too heavy to fit on the copter, yeah. but that's, that, that's really helpful. Yes, yes. And this is one, one challenge um, or one difference between autonomous driving and autonomous flying. So the sensor setup is different. The data acquisition is different, but very complex as well. And there is, you know, kind of a rule in, in, in the aerospace, which makes it also a bit hard for us, which is essentially because we, we are a rather small aircraft, right? We only have a wingspan of two meters. Now, the problem is that we as a small aircraft are enforced kind of to avoid the big aircraft. Assume we have a really big commercial jet, I don't know, an Airbus or a Boeing, whatever. They are big, they have sufficient space, they have sufficient power, they could have the biggest and best uh, sensor setup built in their aircraft because they're big, they have lots of powers to detect the small drones or the small aircraft like ours. But we are the ones to have that need to avoid the other objects. I, I may be right, but they're also able to detect uh, swarms of birds, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, which yes. is pretty pretty impressive because I remember watching the movie where the, the the plane crashed in the Hudson River. Yeah, um, that was an amazing movie. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, really loved that movie. But also, you know, the big aircraft don't avoid the birds, right? No, <laughs> the birds no. have to avoid the aircraft, which I know. Yeah, <laughs> but you, you you've mentioned it then on on way, and obviously it's even comparing it to autonomous driving, not only weight, because they can put in a lot better hardware and batteries. And that's yes. what I wanted to ask. Not necessarily your team and your perform and where you're responsible for, you know, you're looking to try and get the best AI models 
into the copter that perform as best as possible, <laughs> as light yes. as possible. Yes. Um, these guys are trying to do do the same with the battery and the hardware. How how does that trade off work? I mean, as as a pair of you know software AI hardware in terms of trying to get the best performance without go- shooting over the weight. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question, actually. The question, what the best trade-off is, also sure very, you know, there isn't a clear answer to this one. If we had the chance to, to use more power, we would definitely also build better AI models in it. But then the customer would have less range. And so what we do is also we, we discuss with our stakeholders a lot and think about what, what people need and how or which distances or which ranges people need to, to achieve with our copter. And based on this, some really, really clever guy in our business development teams, they come up with a decision and say, okay, uh, we know that our customers need this specific range. So we go with this range. And so we only can give you, I don't know, this and this power consumption for the AI model. And we for sure do the best to think about how can we build the AI model to use only this specific power, but still be able to process a certain frames per second, such that we have a continuous information flow, information gain incoming. The battery guys for sure do the same. And I'm pretty sure that particularly for the batteries, there will be quite big breakthroughs happening in the next years or months. I don't know when exactly will happen, but I do see a lot of potential increase of battery capacity. And for sure, with an increase in battery capacity, we could both increase the range and also the power for the AI, which makes the AI system better. And um, yeah, so I, I think yeah. it's not the end of the story for the batteries. I do I do feel like battery and hardware have tried to catch up with software computers. Yeah. And the reason why I say that is that's all been driven by customer buyer behavior if you think yeah. of iphones they've always wanted two things better battery better camera however the batteries have just managed to keep up with the cameras the softwares yeah. and i do feel that there is there is going to be a time where they just absolutely you know shoot ahead because it's it's so valuable on on battery what is your battery life so the battery life in terms of range is uh, depending on the payload and the weather conditions uh, and how the mission is kind of planned, you know, up to 100 kilometers. I guess actually for, you know, a drone of this size or an aircraft of this size, it's quite amazing. It's I mean, 25 oh, kilograms being moved for 100 kilometers, that's that's a bit. And and the fact that, you know, it's, it's going at a very decent speed that the wind's not damaging it and stuff is is pretty impressive. Yes, it, it definitely is. So um, our previous uh, Wingcopter, the Wingcopter 178, which was the first model that basically was built productively from Wingcopter, also has the speed record for the fastest unmanned aircraft in this specific size category. And I guess it was up to 240 kilometers per hour, but for sure this one was, let's say, a, you know, without any payload and was specifically for this specific flight um, tuned and set up. So we typically don't fly uh, 240 kilometers per hour in <laughs> in typical cruise uh, speed. So it's a bit less than 100 kilometers per hour. This is what we can potentially fly to. 
so yeah, let's let's finish off on our final topic. Uh, again, we touched on it quite quite partially around the perception software, and I guess there's two main areas that you have to look at, right? Take off and landing, and then in yes. flight. Again, very similar to as you've mentioned, autonomous driving, medical imaging. It's your object detection, segmentation, your CNNs. But I suppose what's the key takeaways or what's the key points that you would say around these that that make a wing copter different or or the autonomous drone different? As you mentioned, we have two phases that are important as the takeoff and the landing. And during the takeoff, we need to ensure the same way as during the landing that there is no one, you know, standing around because the least thing that we want to do is to land actually our copter on someone's head because nobody wants to have like a drone of 25 kilograms landed on your head. That could <laughs> quite hurt a bit, actually. So we are we are different. The, the tasks that we are solving during takeoff and landing and, and flight are a bit different. So um, landing for sure means, as I mentioned, figuring out if our landing spot is actually clear to land and during takeoff is the same way. And so the human beings, as I mentioned in the early beginning in terms of autonomous driving, they are getting interesting during takeoff and landing phase. But this is only this, the small part of takeoff and landing, although for sure takeoff and landing is the most critical phase in an actual mission. But yeah, this is this is the, the challenging thing during takeoff and landing compared to autonomous driving. I mean, autonomous driving, you know, th those guys only have one state kind of just is just driving, right? Yeah, and we are a bit different because we have different state: takeoff, landing, and flying. And during the actual cruise, there isn't that much of a risk of getting other people or hitting other people, except for their, you know, parachutes or people that do skydiving or something like this. Yeah, you mentioned gliders really uh, yes, yes. <laughs> messed up witches before. Yeah, interesting. But no, look. I I think I think that's that's a very interesting take, and I I really do appreciate your your in depth answers on a lot of this, Nils. It's been it's been really interesting, particularly for me. And I thought I knew I thought I knew most of it before we were having a conversation today. But yeah, re really happy to to hear so much more about Wingcopter. But that takes us for time. For everyone listening, this is the Computer Vision in Production podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Kelly. Today's guest is Niels Gaylord. Niels is the team lead for AI development at Wingcopter. Niels, it was great to have you. Thank you very much, Anthony. It was great to be here. And I uh, hope people now have a bit clearer understanding what we at Wingcopter do. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Computer Vision in Production podcast with your host, Anthony Kelly. To make sure you get updates on the latest episodes of the show, make sure you subscribe on your preferred podcast listening app or add me on LinkedIn.